Hello and welcome to Everybody Loves Communism, the leftist history and theory podcast where we do the reading so you don't have to. And in addition to history and theory, we also talk about the news sometimes because guess what, folks? History, it's happening. It's happening all the time, uh, especially when there is some sort of uh, movement of the class, shall we say, going on. It seems like it is worth covering. So today we have two very cool guests here. Uh, oh, fuck. I forgot to let you guys say your names, too. <laughs> well, Who I mean, else it, is here on the podcast with me? Well, if anyone like is listening to this podcast, you know who I am. I'm Aaron. Uh, if you haven't, first time listening, again, I'm Aaron. And my name is Jorge. What's up, everybody? And we are here with two very cool guests today. Their names are Max Alvarez and Mel Buer. Uh, did I pronounce that right? Yep. Great. Um, Max is editor-in-chief at The Real News, and Mel is an editor at The Real News. And that is a very cool kind of leftist alternative media outlet. So if you're looking for people who are going to tell you the real news, definitely check it out. Thanks for being here, guys. Yeah, thank you so much, y'all. Uh, thanks, thanks for, for having, having us, us, comrades. I've, I've known you guys, uh, I mean, at least online for, I mean, I guess since I got on Twitter. And, which um, time? You know, Mel, we've... Which, which, <laughs> which account, right? Which fucking account? Um, but four accounts ago? Four, maybe? five, six accounts yeah, ago, I, I, like wait. when Bernie was running or some shit like that in 2020, probably. <laughs> I knew your predecessors. I the, the feel like Aaron's like a cat with nine lives. Like, do you, every time you start a new account, is it like you have no memory of the previous accounts? Uh, or <laughs> I, I, I try to scrub. I try to, I try to scrub any, uh, any previous memory or post or tweets. Uh, you know, fresh start, man. I'm like a phoenix. I rise from the ashes. But, uh, it's like reincarnation it is indeed but uh i just wanted to like before we start uh just want to say you guys are doing some for the past year at least you've been doing some um real good work reporting on labor especially the railroads um so naturally you guys i mean i saw you guys making the rounds um i know citations needed and i'm sure maybe you guys even went on a couple normie you know quote normie publications or outlets but um I did you guys up because uh, you guys are probably the best people, one of the best people to explain um, what the fuck is going on, how we got here and what happens next with this railroad dispute. Yeah, this episode's about the potential railroad worker strike, by the way. Probably should have said that up top, but I'm sure we'll have a clever title that alludes to it. Just just don't just use wildcat. don't use railroaded because unfortunately that one's been used uh, to death. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just well, wildcat exclamation, exclamation exclamation. The workers are running a train <laughs> on the capitalists. <laughs> How about that? Yo, you just made me almost choke on water, dog. Don't do that shit. You made me choke just, on water. Spitballing <laughs> ideas here. But thanks, thanks for saying that. Jesus Aaron, we really, we really do appreciate it. And we're really honored to be on here with you guys. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. All uh, right. So let's uh let's fucking talk about it. So for those who might not have been paying that much attention uh and are only vaguely aware of what's going on, uh, you know, I get it. A lot of things are happening, like definitely more than they used to. Mm -hmm. um, what is that Lenin quote? Weeks and decades. I always fuck it up. Weeks and no, decades or some we're shit. We're definitely <laughs> in one of those weeks where decades are happening. And exactly. I feel like we have been for the past 
two years. <laughs> like 30 years. Yeah, what sure. The long I mean, 80s. I don't know how the long, long it's yeah, been. The long, long, uh, the long 30 years. Yeah. What is yeah, How's so, it go? It's, uh, there, there are decades where you fuck around and weeks where you find out. <laughs> you find out. <laughs> they exactly. about to find out, hopefully. God yeah. willing. I see you've That's, read your Lenin. <laughs> so, yeah, like, what the fuck is going on? Uh, what's this about a potential strike? What is the sequence of events that led us here? Uh, how did we get to the point where the unions repping the a simple majority of railroad railroad workers in the country voted against a tentative agreement, which was itself brokered by the Biden administration back in September? Uh, what's what's going on? Well, this Mel, I don't know if um how you feel about this, but I thought it might be helpful if we kind of like narrated our respective paths into reporting on this because i feel like that's where a lot of our you know shared knowledge came from through a lot of back and forth discussions uh mel's on the ground reporting me editing that and talking with her about it the interviews that i did so yeah let's try that because um Mm. you know i i i think we have both uh learned uh an incredible amount about the nation's freight railroads over the past, you know, 12 months. Uh, But, you know, we were starting uh, pretty much where everyone else is uh, before that. You know, like I, as as you guys mentioned, uh, I'm the editor-in-chief at the Real News Network here in Baltimore, um, part of this kind of new generation of the Real News. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I've been trying to, to bring to the network, right, is, you know, labor reporting, right? And, and, you know, really kind of take the sort of approach that I take to labor reporting, which is to really, you know, like focus on interviewing in depth, uh, doing in depth interviews with actual workers and have essentially them kind of do the reporting uh, on what they're going through, what's going on in their workplaces and, and all that good stuff. And can I interject real quick too, real quick, Max? Um, you also did that. Um, I believe the title of your book, "Working People," is that is that right? Oh, so the um, so I do the the podcast, "Working People," working people. Um, mm-hmm. so that's uh, I've been doing that for a number of years. Uh, we're about to wrap up our fifth season, um, where I interview workers about their lives, jobs, dreams, mm-hmm. and struggles in a in a studs turkle vein, and then my book. Ooh. Grew out of that, um, which mm. was published this year. Uh, it's called The Work of Living, Working People Talk mm. About Their Lives in the Year the World Broke, which was uh, 10 interviews that I conducted with uh, different workers around the country after year one of COVID. Um, but yeah, thank you. Thank you for asking about that. Um, mm. At some point, I got to get serious about actually promoting that fucking thing. But uh, as you guys uh, uh, have mentioned, we've been pretty busy on this end. And um, so, so like trying to kind of bring in that sort of grassroots style of reporting, we do it on labor, uh, but we also do it, you know, uh, every week at the police accountability report where we report on like the violence of the police industrial complex by talking to the people who are victimized by it, the cop watchers who are fighting against it, so on and so forth. Right. So that was kind of where we were in January of this year. When I had heard through the grapevine um, that there was a potential strike brewing on the railroads, Uh, and this wasn't the national strike we've been talking about. This was actually 17,000 workers, conductors and engineers uh, represented by the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen and the uh, Transportation Division of the Sheet Metal Air Rail and Transport Union 
Um, they were working at BNSF Railway, which is owned by um, Berkshire Hathaway, which is owned by Warren Buffett. Um, boo. Boo. Um, so they 17,000 of these workers were prepared to strike uh, and were preparing to do so in January over the implementation of a draconian new points-based attendance policy that is called High Viz, which has like a very creepy Orwellian sort of tone about it. Um, yeah. And it always does, man. It always it's always some euphemism for some Orwellian dystopian shit. Man. Yeah, and it really is. I mean, like we're we're talking about you know, uh, just like UPS drivers, right? Um, you know, engineers and conductors are heavily surveilled. That's been an under like reported fact about the kind of work that they do. There are cameras in all of the cabs. Uh, they're being watched all the time. There are regulations about them not being able to have their phones on while they're in the middle of their run, so on and so forth. So at a time when you already have a heavily surveilled, uh, overworked workforce, implementing this uh, attendance policy really was a bridge too far and workers were prepared to strike over it. Then I heard um, that a district court actually blocked those workers from striking um, when they, they were expected to hit the picket line on February 1st. So that prompted me to uh, connect with a little group called Railroad Workers United. Uh, and it's been very cool because I remember reaching out to them when they had, I think, between 300 and 400 Twitter followers. And uh, in, since then, I think now they're over 10,000. They've they've blown up. Didn't they release a statement earlier to maybe this week or something like that saying that at least as representatives of rank and file railroad workers, that they thought that the contract that was pushed on them by Congress and Biden was illegitimate. Yeah. Yeah. Very powerful statement. They're, it's very powerful they're an incredible group of folks, and I would highly recommend everyone out there go support them, go buy their merch, because, um, you know, honestly, we wouldn't even be having this conversation if it wasn't for them. If it was left up to the union leadership, it would just be, you know, Dennis Pierce out there doing more interviews that, like, no one's really excited about, um, because even when right. I was trying to report on the BNSF stuff, it was very hard to get rank and filers to even speak off the record because they were so terrified of getting fired, because they're being watch so closely and even their family members would reach out to me and say please don't even respond to this because i'm worried about Jesus someone Christ. hearing it but like you know my husband you know like is is i'm worried that he's gonna have a heart attack by the time he's 48 we never get to see him he's depressed yada 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 so that's that's what we're talking about here so anyway uh, i know i'm going long here but i i you know mm. talked to a retired engineer jeff kurtz great jeff kurtz also works with railroad workers united and we interviewed i did an interview with him about that bnsf block strike on february 1st and the thing that he kept telling me was like you have to understand this is just the tip of the iceberg this goes so much deeper than just a shitty attendance policy that everyone's pissed off about. What you have to understand mm -hmm. is why the railroads are implementing these kinds of attendance policies, because it's not just BNSF. It's happening. Every every class one freight rail carrier has their own version of these horrible attendance policies. And these are also types of attendance policies that Mel and I have reported on elsewhere. Mel reported on Kellogg's workers last year striking over a similar attendance policy. The great Kim Kelly has gone down to Alabama multiple times for us at The Real News to report on the striking coal miners at Warrior Met mm -hmm. Coal, who've been on strike for over 600 days, who are also fighting against a similar policy and complaining that they never get to see their families and they're spending all their lives under the crust of the earth while their children grow up without them above ground, right? This is a, a problem that is really impacting workers in so many different industries. But on the railroads, when we started um, you know, to realize that 
the implementation of this attendance policy was almost a, a necessary uh, feature of a larger business mm-hmm. practice um, that that has kind of taken hold of the nation's freight rail carriers uh, when Wall Street realized that it could extract a shit ton of money from the mm-hmm. the the country's freight railroads, and that that has that didn't just happen yesterday. That's been going on for decades now. That's why Warren Buffett bought BNSF. He's not an idiot. He mm-hmm. he only picks winners, as people always say. He knew that the freight railroads. Um, to to put it in the terms of Cory Doctorow and the great Rebecca Giblin, in their new book, they write about choke point capitalism, and they talk about how it's like an hourglass, right? And like mm. imagine an hourglass where you've got like customers on one side and you've got producers on the other side, and you've got these capitalist middlemen just squeezing the middle. And and like basically mm. like creating that choke point, that is what the railroads have done, because what I'm going to toss it to Mel in a sec. But what we started to realize the more that we reported on this was it wasn't just the workers who were being run into the ground and it wasn't just the attendance policies. I mean, they were being on call 24 seven, 365. Um they were working longer shifts. Their trains were like twice as long as they used to be when they had half as many people on the trains themselves than they used to be. So you got workers who are pissed off, but you also have customers who are pissed off on the freight railroads. Like the sh- you actually have shippers complaining mm-hmm. to the surface transportation board saying, give the workers what they want because these rail carriers are screwing everybody. They are jacking up prices on us because we have nowhere else to go. Mm-hmm. We have to use mm-hmm. freight shipments. Um, but these Wall Street back companies realized that they could make more money by moving less freight and just charging more for it. Right. And so you've got mm. that choke point where, again, the, the rail companies, they don't do anything. They just control uh, the levers that say how much other people do. Right. And so exactly. you've got the shippers who are pissed off. You've got ports that are backed up because we're not moving enough freight. And that's creating um higher prices that shippers have to pay to use the 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 less amount of freight that's being uh shipped across the rail lines but you've also got workers fewer workers than than we've had in in you know jeez uh, uh, ever right i mean we used to have mm. over 500,000 people working on these railroads in 1980 and now we have less than like around 130,000 that's insane yeah. and, and the wow. rail carriers have laid off 30% of their workforce since 2015 alone so this is a deliberate Jesus. thing because they are cutting every year their their shareholders are like are we cutting labor costs are we cutting our investment in rail maintenance are we jacking up prices on shippers like are we extracting as much as we possibly can from this vital supply chain it doesn't matter that they're running workers in the ground and that they're you know snarling the supply chain and everyone's pissed mm-hmm. off because the the shareholders are raking in more in stockholder buyback or uh, uh, stock buybacks and shareholder dividends than mm-hmm. ever before union pacific just had its most profitable year ever to the tunes of billions and billions of dollars. These companies are not hurting. They have figured out how to squeeze the most they can out of this mouse trap mm. industry, and they have trapped a lot of mice in it. All right, Mel. So then, then I brought Mel in because I was like, hey, this is much bigger than I thought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mel, take it away from there. <laughs> can, can, I, can I just say real, can I just say really, really quick too, just real quick before Mel, um, Mel jumps in. I just want to highlight again and let people know how important this is. And like, obviously, if you're listening to this, you should be supporting all workers. But it's not just about my impression is that it's not just about the sick days, right? This is about conditions that affect all workers and especially in the railroad industry that they have been slashing, cutting to the bone, right? 
Just, I mean, the labor, the staffing. And I mean, we're not just talking about like, you know, uh, conductors and engineers, but all types of people who work in the railroad industry. And as you have said in your reporting, both of you guys, this has been going on for decades now, right? So this is something that isn't just about sick days on the railroad. This affects all workers and all these practices that we're seeing in different industries. And this is why this is super important for people to understand this, right? Because your fate as a worker is wrapped up in this as well, right? I mean, it also affects everybody who buys stuff, right? Because uh, this is one of the reasons why basic goods cost more money than they used to, no? Yes. Yeah, well, you're passing the buck onto the consumer, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty pretty typical of any industry that wants to maximize profits. You raise prices on both ends and you get to keep what's left over, you know? Um, and certainly the railroads have been doing this for a long time. And it's, um, you know... It's something that happened, started happening far before the COVID-19 pandemic caused an absolute nightmare for international and global shipping routes, right? Um, And when Max first called me, uh, I was in an airport on the way back from a birthday trip to New York, um, and he put me on this assignment. When I got back, I took the uh, rented a car and drove to Fort Madison, Iowa, which is this like little outpost in the middle of, you know, in, in Southern Iowa, it's right along the Mississippi river. Um, it's very, it's like 10,000 people. It's, it's, it is a railroad town, right? Uh, almost its entire economy is pretty much split between like a DuPont manufacturing plant and, uh, the money that the railroads can bring in. And that has pretty much been the way that it has run its economy since its inception in like the 1860s or what have you. Um, and, it is a, a vital sort of piece for uh, a place where BNSF sort of connects to other uh, railroads um, and sends their freight off in different directions from its, you know, terminus or, or you know, point where it meets in um, in Fort Madison. And it was this very important sort of space for BNSF, both former employees, which was the vast majority of the folks who showed up to this rally that I went to go and attend, um, and some... Uh, some BNSF current employees who are uh, very forward with their sort of union membership, their, you know, legislative representatives or hold some sort of office in the union. And they showed up to essentially draw attention to the fact that this attendance policy with BNSF was driving workers into the ground, right? Mm. So we finally got a chance to really start talking to some real workers who were uh, willing and able to go on record to talk about the conditions that they were working under. Um, and, you know, the, the biggest thing that I can remember is, is, you know, Jeff introduces me to this group of like four or five guys right before this rally starts. And I asked a single question and they talked uninterrupted for like 30 minutes. That's it. It was the first time that someone had, someone had actually taken the time, it seemed like, to like listen to what their concerns were and just let them talk about how this was completely running their families themselves into the ground, right? Uh, key words out of this were, you know, we're earning blood money, right? Mm. These people are, uh, you know, they have five kids. They are, uh, you know, um, racking up attendance points just so that they can attend the birth of their children, for example. This is fucking you know, disgusting they were telling. Now wild, right? They were telling me stories about uh, colleagues that they had heard who had suffered medical emergencies on lines where there, uh, you know, where there was only, you know, two people in the train and one of them hadn't showed up, uh, you know, and these people are are driving these tons and tons heavy 
miles long, you know, trains through communities, right? Um, through these winding yards, right? Um, they're carrying goods both to from shippers to manufacturing points. You know, if it's raw goods like corn or soybeans, right? Creates fuel or plastics or, you know, all these types of things. Or they are actually taking these manufactured goods to market or to be exported, right? So, you know, all of this is like important pieces of our supply chain, right? Um, and they looked and felt tired. They were exhausted, right? Um, you know, and they were ready to talk to people about what was going on with this. And granted, at this point, this was in May of this year. At this point, they had been at the bargaining table since, what, January of 2020? Um mm. Yes, I don't remember exactly when uh, the date, but it was somewhere in, in the early part of 2020 is when their contract expired. So they had been bargaining for two years at that point. Wow. Uh, got nowhere, right? Um, and, you know, in the midst of this bargaining, BNSF and I think one other rail line, if I'm remembering correctly, Max, had instituted uh, high vis or similar attendance policies. So they are in the middle of bargaining a new contract. And they are tacking this on to these workers who worked without, really without complaint all the way through the pandemic, getting sick, right? Still showing up to work, um, having to make these very, almost life or death decisions about, Mm -hmm. okay, I'm feeling horrible and I need to go get checked out. Or I just got diagnosed with cancer and I need to go see a doctor. But if I go to this doctor's appointment today, then maybe I won't have points for tomorrow in case my kid gets sick or ends up in the hospital or some emergency happens, right? So they're making a bargain with the devil every time that they decide to call out of work, right? Jesus Christ. And the company is not giving them the ability to even, you know, when you lose points, you get like three chances, right? It's a three strike sort of thing. You lose points all the way down to zero. They ding you. They bring it back up. Instead of the 25 points that you started with, they give you 15 back. Oh my God. Or 10 I mean, back. The, the, I just right? want to say the gamification of this shit is like beyond disgusting because like it just reduces human beings to numbers, right? I mean, exactly. which is what capitalism does, but these people are literally fodder. Yeah. Right. right. It sounds, exactly. It sounds and, like what they do in the Amazon warehouse as well. Yeah. I yeah. mean, and that's, that's a very big similarity. Like anyone who uses the, whatever version of the point system it is, it reduces your workforce to the numbers to how many days can you put in? We saw this on the picket line at Kellogg's. You know, you had workers on the on the picket line at Kellogg's that I spoke to in Omaha, one of which had a stroke on the floor, got dinged points, missed doctor's appointments, came back to work like three days later. You know what I mean? You heard stories about, you know, individuals getting really, really like catastrophically injured, right? Um, and doing whatever they could to fight tooth and nail to get back on the floor so that they didn't lose their jobs or the time they've accrued for their pension, or the health insurance for their children, you know, these types of things, right? Um, And the companies, particularly the railroads, know this, know that they can hang these benefits that are contingent upon them showing up to work right over their heads and say, we will threaten your entire livelihood if you don't come to work. You're the sole breadwinner of your family? Well, you just got shit canned because I'm sorry, your 10 year old daughter got sick too many times. You know what I mean? Mm. These types of things that are, you know, these wagers that they have to make on a daily basis just to make sure that they can maintain, you know, some semblance of uh, normalcy in terms of getting an an income. Right. Mm. And 
time and time again, you see corporations like keep in mind one thing that I want to clarify with these class one freight railroads, what we mean by class one is that each set of these like railroad companies. So BNSF or Union Pacific or, you know, uh, uh, what is it? Northern um, Norfolk Southern. Thank you. Um, these types of railroads. When we say class one, it means how much uh, product freight are they moving and how much profit are they making? So we're talking like they're clearing a threshold of like seven, eight figures every quarter or every year. So they are the top earners in the industry. They make billions of dollars in profit at this point, right? Uh, let's see. Union Pacific posted $1.3 billion in the last quarter of 2021. Jesus it's one Christ. quarter. Yo, one, one quarter, quarter right? of bill, over a billion dollars, dude. You can, yeah. you can go, you can access a lot of these earnings calls and you can listen to them brag about the record profits that they're raking in. And like it again, like you couldn't have a, a more black and white good versus evil sort of story. And I'm glad that the public has started to recognize that that's what we're dealing with. Um, but I wanted to just say kind of three quick things and then, then I don't want to hog the mic here, but just, um, so two points of, of clarification. Um, so, I'm sure if anyone who is listening to this has has heard me or Mel on another interview, they've heard us kind of basically speed through the Railway Labor Act in like five minutes or less. <laughs> but, you know, I won't I'll spare everyone that here. What I would just um, say in case it was lost when, and when we got started is that part of the reason this has been such an ongoing learning process for me and Mel is that uh, we realized that. Um, you know, uh, it's not just the railroads, right? It's other kind of transportation industries, but labor relations on the railroads are not governed by the National Labor Relations Act like most jobs. They're governed by something called the Railway Labor Act, which was passed in the 1920s with the explicit purpose of averting if at all possible, uh, you know, uh, uh, disruptions to the supply chain, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's essentially right. a, a Rube Goldberg system of laws and stages to clear uh, before a strike or a lockout could legally happen on the nation's railroads. It's meant to make that as unreachable of a destination as possible. It's not impossible because as we, we've gotten very close uh, over the past year, um, but as we've seen all the stages, because while Mel and I were reporting on this, the Railway Labor Act was playing out in front of our eyes, right? When mm -hmm. Mel was was mm -hmm. reporting on the ground, um, I think that the rail carriers and the, the rail unions were in federal mediation, um, and then they were released from that mediation in, um, in the early summer when um, the Federal Mediation Board declared an impasse between the two sides, which triggered a 30-day cooling-off period, during which President Biden or anyone who's president could appoint what's called a presidential emergency board to step in, assess the two sides. Can I, can, I, yeah. can I clarify real quick? So that cooling off period, is this meant to like kind of cool the heads, like literally cool, the, not literally, mm -hmm. but cool the heads of the workers to sort of make them distance themselves through time, right? Um, and sort of, um, I mean, yeah, relax, right? Kind of chill out, right? Yep. Well, God, certainly, man. yes, yes. And, you know, the charitable sort of explanation of this is, okay, so we give both sides the chance to walk away from the table, Cool their jets, make sure that they're not throwing punches across the table at each other. And then hopefully they can come back together and they can actually start to 
work together in good faith to continue these negotiations. That's the charitable sort of mm. explanation of what these cooling off periods are for, right? Um, and, you know, any any union person is going to tell you that strikes are always a last minute, uh, last resort type of action, right? right? We really hope that we would not have to reach that point. Um, in this case, it's a, very, it's a very unique sort of case. And I know Max can probably really kind of dig into why it's kind of a unique case. Uh, the less charitable version is it really does cool the sort of militancy of the rank and file, mm-hmm. right? So rank and file would, you know, they, they see these stalled out sort of things happening um, in previous in previous decades, even, you know, before the Railway Labor Act was uh, put into place, we saw rail strikes every decade during times of economic downturn and turmoil for as long as the railroads have reached across the country, you know. Um, and they, you know, it's a very powerful thing that militant rank and file rail workers can bring the American supply chain and economy to its knees simply by setting down tools, you know, because that infrastructure is so central to how goods, services, capital flows across this country and now globally. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, and that is a lot of power in the hands yeah. of workers. Right. I, I, so, you know, the RLA is also in place there to sort of make sure that the workers can't really realize their full potential there. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, you think Max? if it's such an important service uh, that the government is able to impose extra rules on the workers, uh, maybe they shouldn't leave it up to the private sector, which is going to do crazy shit and piss the workers off. But, you know, that this is America. Yeah. We have freedom here. I think that's um, perfectly put. And in fact, Railroad Workers United, one of the the silver linings to come from this whole shitty, arduous, dismal, drawn out process is the rank and file cross craft solidarity that you're seeing in a group like Railroad Workers United. It's not a union. Uh, The rail unions, another uh, footnote, I guess, for people trying to make sense of this is on top of the Railway Labor Act, on top of the different rail carriers running different lines, carrying different kinds of freight uh, across the country. You also have a very um, kind of archaic, well, somewhat archaic. Like there, there are reasons why craft specific, uh, you know, memberships have like craft specific <clears throat> demands. But mm. um, workers on the freight railroads are represented by twelve different um, craft unions, right? So you have uh, prime, like the BLET. You've uh, that that. Um, what is it? The BLET is primarily engineers and the smart TD is primarily mm-hmm. conductors, but there are a little bit of both in each one. There's the brotherhood mm-hmm. of maintenance and way division. Those are the guys, uh, uh, the, the guys and gals who, who work on the tracks. They're the signalmen. They're the dispatchers. They're the machinists in the machine yard. They're the boiler makers. Like there are a lot of different people who make the railroads happen and they do bargain as a unit. Um, but they, there again, there's also a kind of like very, you know, uh, like I won't go into the whole process of how these different unions work mm. together and how the different carriers who also bargain as a unit work together, yada, yada. We don't have to get into that now. The, the, but the, the clarification point that I wanted to make about the expiration of the contract, another provision of the Railway Labor Act is that it's actually very hard to change your contract. Um, so mm. like the, the contract that Mel mentioned, um, I guess technically we would say it didn't expire because of the RLA. Um, if you want to change your contract over a major dispute, 
which constitutes like um, changes to pay rate, working conditions and work rules and stuff like that. So, again, per the RLA, there are actually steps before you open bargaining where the Federal Mediation Board gets involved and they, they like try to get the two sides to mediate an agreement before actually quote, opening quote, bar- unquote mediate. Yeah, right. So yeah. so anyway, the point being is that um, that that the workers have been without an, an updated contract for three years, but their old contract has been in effect that whole time. Because unlike strikes that we see in other industries, where if the contract expires, you go out on strike, right? Um, mm-hmm. That not the case on the railroads. If if the contract if the contract right. expires, it kind of it's like a zombie contract that stays in place while a three year fucking long uh, process unfolds where you try to kind of negotiate for things. Um, and as we have seen the the thread that i want to connect here because everything that we've seen over the past week where mr pro-union president joe biden um pulls the rug out from under workers after a three-year-long process of trying to fight for a better contract at the very end of all of that biden just steps in and tells congress we need to force workers to accept the ta that i helped broker back in september Mm. that's the end of that um you know like the, the the saga is now over and the thing is is that the rail carriers have always expected that to happen if we got to this point, which is why mm. the negotiations have gone on so long, because they've just been sitting there with their arms folded, not budging yeah. for mm. shit. I think like because uh, they're like, we're, they're ready for the end game. They're like, OK, we know what's going to happen, right? We don't have to negotiate anymore because Big Daddy Uncle Joe is going to step in right? Yeah, or anyone because right. Bush did it in 92. Like any president mm. is going to cave to this. I mean, we can talk later about the things that Biden could have done if he actually was pro-union. Mm. But I just wanted to kind of clarify that point um in that in that like we are now closer to the opening of the next contract bargaining session in 2025 than we are the beginning of this one and so one hopeful thing is that people are building momentum looking forward to that and they're going to be ready the next time around the two other uh, clarification points i wanted to make uh, the amazon model that, that you mentioned i think is really important because, yeah, like we've also reported on this at The Real News. I went down to Bessemer, reported there. I went to Staten Island. I've talked to a lot of workers at uh, 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 different Amazon facilities across the country. And we all know the horror stories, right? This is what it looks like when you treat human beings like nothing but faceless meatbags who you can squeeze as much labor as you can out of them. Uh, and then when they have nothing left to give, when their bodies break down, you just spit them out the other side and you keep taking in more people. Amazon mm-hmm. warehouses have a turnover rate of 150%. They're going to run out of people in the country to fill those fucking things in the, in a few years. Now, it's like fucking Moloch, right. man. It is, you know, <laughs> and, and the, the, but the disaster is when you import that into the railroads, you are talking about losing workers who have accrued five, 10, 15 years of, of really highly skilled experience. Like, you know, if you are operating on the trains, you're an engineer, conductor, you got to know every inch of that track. You've got to um, memorize like an encyclopedia Britannica's worth of operating codes and federal regulations and changes to those codes, so on and so forth. So imagine like the, like, Heading into this year, we were already seeing workers in this industry quit in record numbers. That brain drain mm-hmm. is is in the effect of that brain drain is incalculable. But the rail carriers, again, all they're looking at is their bottom line. If they just see that number going up, they don't give a shit. But all of us are worse off for it. And the last thing I wanted to say, just to really highlight what Mel was saying about 
how really throughout all of this, our focus has been the people, the human beings that we've connected with and spoken to and trying to lift up their concerns out of all of this noise to say, like, look, at the end of the day, we are talking about your neighbors, your fellow parishioners, mm-hmm. right? You know, the kid, the parents of the kids that you go to school with, um, you know, like Aaron Hiles. Uh, I'm very grateful that it hasn't just been me and Mel, but there have been a, a number of folks who have been doing good coverage of this, including the great Jonah Furman, including Jeff Shirky at uh, In These Times, a couple of folks at Railway Age, and of course, Lauren Gurley, our, our girl Lauren Gurley, who moved from Vice's mm-hmm. motherboard to Washington Post. Shout out to Lauren. Lauren wrote a really beautiful piece about someone Mel and I had heard about, and I'm very grateful to her for publishing it in the Washington Post, but it was about Aaron Hiles, a BNSF uh, railway engineer who told his wife that he felt different in his chest. He knew that he had to schedule an appointment with his doctor because something was wrong. But because of the high vis attendance policy, because of the ways the railroads have made it impossible for workers to have any semblance of a life outside of work, this man died in an engine room alone, uh, away from his family. His dying moments were on the floor of some fucking horrifying, you know, like, uh, like, like, like steam filled room because of a policy that never should have been in there in the first place, right? Like, imagine that, right? This, this is what we are talking about here. How can we live with this? How can we accept the unacceptable inhumanity that we are wrecking upon the people who make these railroads run for the sake of fucking billionaires like Warren Buffett? Yeah, I want to... Uh, it's really... It's sorry, really, go ahead. Go ahead. That, that, that fucking tore me up, man. Go ahead. Or yeah, no, so I mean... It you know it's really powerful in a sense of like it just so it just shows like the immiseration of which like finance capital, which is important to point to as well here that there's a reason why uh, these railway railway companies have kind of shifted in the past few decades. There's a reason why you're pointing to around the '80s it started becoming much more intense because there's the combination of like neoliberalism, which is really just like the extension of financialization. In all in all companies and in the domination of finance capital uh, as this new era, like basically the new new era of finance capital in 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 our society has led to kind of really ratcheting up to what you were both of you were saying about uh, increasing shareholder profits and something that must be really mentioned, you know, to kind of underline what you said a while ago, Max. It's just really anyone listening, it 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 is incredibly easy to find. Uh, shareholder earning calls for a lot of companies. I really encourage everyone listening to, if you have time, just check out the earnings call, particularly for these companies, because they are really proud of what they do. Because guess what? The audience is not you or I. It's not anyone mm-hmm. on this who's listening. The audience are the, are the earning class, the property class, the ruling class, and they're talking about how we're we're delivering for you how we're extracting all this value from these workers. We don't care what's happening. We care that we're bringing the profit, bringing the value to that your pocket that you did not work for, the, va- the money that we're bringing to you that you did not work for, someone else did. But don't worry about them. We're bringing mm-hmm. it to you and we're making you happy. And it's also important to note as well regarding costs in terms of consumers, but also to labor costs. If I remember correctly, like BNSF Railway and Union Pacific Railroad, both are a duopoly in the Western, Midwestern, and Southern United States in terms of uh, transcontinental freight rail lines. So 
even even if like a company that wanted to get their supplies from them for, from somewhere else, they don't really have a choice either. Mm, right. So so there's also you know so much for free market economics, right? It's like in a sense of uh, at the end of the day, it's it's only about domination of capital, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and we've we've talked about this on you know we talked about this on citations needed, right? Um, there's only so much track that's built around the United States. Uh, very few folks are building more track, right? Mm-hmm. And a hundred percent of that track is divvied up, owned by and divvied up by these major freight, uh, you know, carriers, right? These class one carriers, right? Um, and they've made decisions and deals with each other to sort of, you know, set out their turf and as far as they can share it. Right. Um, and so they've monopolized the entire industry in terms of how much track is, is bought and, you know, shuffled around between people. Right. Um, and so, yeah, you're right. The only option is to contract with them is to use their rail lines. Right. Even Amtrak buys Pieces of of the day in order to run their own trains pieces on that track. Pieces of the track. day. Yeah. So <laughs> you know you have say for example you have the California Zephyr which runs from Chicago to Los Angeles. It starts in Chicago at two p.m. every day usually, um, and goes all the way to California and then picks back up and comes back. You know, um, and you can depending on if you're going east or west. The time will always be the same when it picks up in your area. Like in Omaha, it picks up at five o'clock in the morning. If you're going to Chicago, if you want to go west, it drops off at 11 o'clock at night. You got to be there to get on the train and there you go. Right. So that's just one line. Um, that is what they have you know, contracted for that line, which I think Union Pacific and portions of BNSF are the ones who own that piece of track. And we're talking about a federal agency that's renting from a private fucking railroad company. Is that what we're talking about? Like Amtrak is essentially renting this track, this, this, this line of track out from right. a private entity. That's insane to me. Right. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> and, um, mm-hmm. um, it is mind blowing, right? Uh, it's also one of the reasons why I think that any sort of attempts at creating high speed rail in this country have been torpedoed is mm-hmm. because these billionaires do not want to share in any sort of profits that would make it, it, it nearly impossible for them to, to continue doing what they're doing, right? Mm-hmm. If we had high-speed rail, then Amtrak could move their, their their shit to other privately owned rail that allows for these types of commuter things mm-hmm. to happen. It, you know, it changes the whole landscape for these people who live and die by their bottom line, right? Mm-hmm. Um, no matter what the cost is. Um, and, you know, the cost is pretty pretty substantial in terms of workforce loss in terms of how much delays happen at the ports. I think we're still like eight or nine days behind in terms of getting freight out of the ports onto trains to where they need to go. And that was before we had shortages. That was before, you know, the worst of the pandemic came through. That was long before this. This has been a problem for many, many years. Yeah. Um, I mean, Oh, please go ahead. Sorry. Oh, you know, you know, I think the biggest thing to say here is that, you know, the higher the profits, the farther away you get from realizing that it, it really is human beings are the ones who are creating these profits for mm-hmm. these companies, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that was a big thing that, you know, through Max's fantastic editing and through my work on this article that came out that I, you know, wrote in July was really driving home the point that whenever you hear mainstream media talking about the supply chain, it is devoid of the humanity that makes mm-hmm. it run. And that's on purpose, right? Because mm-hmm. if you think about the actual human people 
with lives, with families, with hopes, dreams, with pride in their jobs, with careers they've been doing for decades, right? All of these people have put their themselves, their livelihoods, their bodies, whatever you want to call it, on the line to keep this ship moving. Mm-hmm. And they believed these companies, when these companies said, you are essential through this pandemic, let's work together to make mm-hmm. this continue working, right? And what happens when we get into our recovery phase of the pandemic? They're like, actually, huh, just joking. Um, we're going to make this really fucking difficult for you. Yeah, uh, good you luck. weren't essential. Watching you weren't, esen- grow up. You weren't mm-hmm. essential. You're expendable. And one thing I want to note real quick, I think Jamie wanted to say something. I just want to note, like, you brought in, you brought up the, the media, the mainstream media, and it is so frustrating. I remember on Citations Needed, um, they played a uh, like a maybe thirty second clip of um, anchors and reporters uh, framing it as um, consumers versus railroad workers, as if the railroad workers are the fucking ones that are preventing little Jimmy from getting his Christmas presents. I mean, this kind of <laughs> disgusting. I mean, it's just how do you blame the people that are like blood, sweat, and tears who have decades of experience, and you're blaming those people? For the consumers, right? Or the supply chain, as you said, Mel, which is devoid of any humanity at all, right? But I'm thankful, though, at least that I think that workers across the country, I think, right? Or at least what I've seen, they're on the side of the workers, right? Like, they're not like that fucking stupid where they're like, I mean, there's some people I see online saying dumb shit, but these people don't fucking matter, right? They're not real people. But I think most people understand, like, no, I mean, like the railroad companies, they're the ones that are putting this squeeze, this hourglass sort of construction that you were talking about, Max, right? So I just wanted to note that out. I mean, how disgusting it is that the mainstream media is trying to pit workers against each other, right? Well, workers like, against consumers or all workers against each other. Well, the, the, capital, the mainstream media are owned by capitalists and their capitalists are interested mm-hmm. in profit. But if they have a large amount of wealth, they want to park that wealth in these particular assets. And if one of, one of the main... One of the most important asset that's exists in like the you know the top thirty companies in like the index known as the Dow Jones, like the most thirty biggest important companies uh, in terms of the American economy, because like Apple, Goldman Sachs, like big financial institutions, and also, but one of them being Berkshire Hathaway. Berkshire Hathaway is the most expensive single stock you can buy. I think it's like a hundred some thousand dollars. So if you're a wealthy person, particularly someone who owns like CNN or Fox News or things of that nature, then oh. Oh yeah, I, I don't want my shares of Berkshire Hathaway to go down. So exactly. then I will be like, no, the problem are these pesky workers that are meddling with my profits. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Well, and it's, go ahead, Jamie. I mean, what what we've been talking about all along is the commodity form, right? Like, there's a reason that Marx starts capital with the commodity. And talks about how this is so central to capitalism, this thing that's the only thing that you that, that we see, the only thing that the average consumer sees or interacts with, all of the things that are concealed within that and all of the relationships between people such that, you know, we're more interdependent for our material survival than ever. But most of the things we use on a daily basis were made by workers whose names we'll never know. Um, usually a chain of workers whose names we'll never know and who will never know each other's names, mm-hmm. right? Because they are all over the world and they speak different languages. And it is a very rude awakening sometimes when people who are not used to thinking about this have to say, oh, there are human beings involved here. Uh, maybe the way to break out of this and the reason why my life is so shitty and alienating, maybe we need to rebuild these relationships and that is the key. Mm-hmm. 
Maybe one uh, sort of hopeful side effect of the pandemic um, is that the sort of illusion, the veil between this idea that, you know, human beings are the ones who create this, these commodities, they are the labor that creates the wealth in this world. That sort of veil has just been totally shredded, mm-hmm. right? You, right? You really do see the sort of the humanity that exists within um, you know, every piece of production uh, at every stage of, of the sort of economic push forward. Right. Um, and I think in many ways, particularly with uh, the the strikes and the sort of uptick in labor organizing, I mean, 2020 was a 2022 is, is the year that's had the one of the uh, long largest union drives in the last 15 years, the most union drives have happened this mm-hmm. year in the last 15 or 20 years. And that's with a severely underfunded NLRB trying to help things along, right? You have private sector things like Starbucks stores, like Amazon warehouses uh, that typically have not seen or enjoyed the the protection of unions. They are now unionizing, right? So people are sort of waking up to or uh, be feeling more empowered to join in uh, these organizing drives and to really sort of reach across and feel like they can speak to their neighbors. Right. And a lot of the coverage, the labor coverage that I've been engaged with that Max has done through both working people and through the real news network is really sort of putting that face to this work, mm-hmm. right. Um, putting that face to the working class to make, uh, you know, to make it, imp- you know, uh, the sort of chief concern of ours as journalists is to, provide that, uh, you know, that hand up the, the, the microphone, you know, tell us about your lives. Tell us about not just the the struggles that you're engaged in, but just who you are as people. Right. Um, that's the one thing that I really enjoy about talking to workers on, on a regular basis. Right. It's the thing that makes me get up in the morning and want to keep doing the work that I'm doing is because these are some of the most radical, beautiful, uh, you know, um, wonderfully class conscious individuals, people who may have voted for Trump mm-hmm. last, last election, who still understand class dynamics, right. And who are very attuned to that as members of the working class and also understand what it means to be standing on a picket line, for example, and understanding the meaning of solidarity and what it also means to, uh, you know, uh, feel empowered uh, as, you know, the producers of, that labor, the ones who bring that labor to these profits, right? And they are asking for some of those profits back in order so their lives can be improved, right? Beautiful. Let's do it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think this particular uh, very public contract fight um, is sort of a perfect storm of radicalizing events, right? Where your layperson who is not part of the ostensible left who is not maybe connected to the labor movement writ large, right? Who watches CNN and then goes to work and comes home and what have you now sees this very stark example of what happens when capital is trying to squeeze blood out of its workforce when they don't have anything left to give, right? It's reduced a lot to this sick leave policy, but that is also an effective tool for messaging for these unions, right? Because they can say, we were asking for seven days. Right. Like I, that's it. Right. And, and both the Biden administration and Congress and the rail carriers all said, fuck no. Mm -hmm. You know, what does that look like to the regular person? Looks like shit. Looks like shit. Disastrous optics. Right. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask about. Right. Like, I know it's not only about sick days, but 
you know, to the average person who maybe has an office job or another kind of job where they get sick days, the idea that the workers cannot have any paid sick days is like, uh, what the fuck? Like, you'd have to be a pretty fucking cruel evil person to not think workers are even entitled to that so like why are the railroads so hesitant to give workers these sick days right because it's uh, it's standard in so many industries which are presumably controlled by capitalists who are just as greedy like i don't know if uh you know maybe the railroad ones are like worse people but that's not a material explanation so uh you know beyond like the basic fact that you know my my basic understanding of marx and common sense tells me you know capitalists want to minimize the number of workers they hire obviously because each additional hire cuts into profits in a way that simply working fewer workers harder does not. But what is special about this industry that they are willing to give other kinds of concessions, right? Like a 24% raise over five years, um, other things related to their benefits, but they're not willing to budge on this particular thing. Yeah. And we just want to say, I think Jamie's question, um, I think, uh, and even, um, um, uh, one way to look at it too is why why are the railroad companies uniquely ontologically evil? That's that's what I'd say. Uniquely, it seems <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I mean, like it's the it's the ontology of capital, right? Because the railroads have provided an opportunity for capitalists uh, to go farther uh along the the lines of their prerogatives than um capitalists and other industries perhaps can um so this is like in effect it's just a later stage of what every other capitalist wants to do right they want to be able to cap if you can capture your market if you can eliminate competition if you can uh capture your customers and jack prices up on them as much as possible because they have nowhere else to go if you can keep running your workers uh you know into the ground and uh into the meat grinder and destroying their lives and their bodies as much as you want because no one, uh, you know, in the government is going to step in to help them, then wh- then they're just going to keep doing it, right? Capitalists cannot mm. help themselves. They're going to keep going in the direction of maximal profit, and that's what's happening on the railroads. And I think Jamie's question is is um, very apt because, uh, as Mel said, this was never about sick days in a lot of ways. In fact, if you talk to a lot of railroaders as as we have, they'll tell you they're like we didn't use. We didn't ever. We never cared about sick days in the past because we didn't need them. In the past, mm. uh, you had mm. more workers. You had managers who weren't pieces of shit, um, and you had. You, we were generally moving more freight, and so what you had is like you know you had the, the these uh, boards with uh, assignments for people on certain trains. Uh, if you had been working like you know shift after shift after shift, and you finally were tapped out, or you were feeling sick, or your kid was sick, you would say, you know what, I'm going to mark off off uh for for the next day so then there's like a whole kind of reserve board of folks who can slot in and make sure that you know the trains keep running they take your shift other people moved up you know yada 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 there's a lot of moving parts here but it was a system that allowed for workers to have more flexibility with their scheduling 
because there were more workers waiting in the wings um, to cover for them if they needed to mark off. Then um, with the kind of, yeah, like Wall Street takeover of the railroads with the implementation of precision scheduled railroading, we don't have to go into what that is. It's essentially an industry term for everything we've been talking about, cutting labor costs, making the trains longer, having fewer people uh, crew those trains, you know, uh, cut operating costs and maintenance costs and infrastructure costs left and right while jacking up prices. That's basically what precision scheduled railroading is. But anyway, when this process really started to take hold of the industry and the the labor cutting side of that equation really started to kind of take effect. This is what I was uh, trying to say before is that what I realized after I reported on the blocked BNSF railway strike over the high-vis attendance policy back in February, what I realized is that, oh, like these carriers have to implement these kinds of policies because they don't have any workers left. They And they have mm. deliberately cut themselves so far to the bone that it would fuck everything up if workers took, if they said, you know what, I'm sick, I'm going to mark off. Because now they're like, no, no, we've cut everybody. You got to stay at work. So by their own savagery, they've kind of like, they've cut their like legs off at the knees through their own savagery. And they totally it, fucked themselves. Yeah. And I mean, and it's not even like they care about that. What they do is they just pass it on to the workers, right? Yes. That's exactly what they do. And, and like, Christ, and, yeah. um, and the, 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 the funny thing is, or maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe the hopeful thing. Um, but th- this goes to, you know, the question that was, that was raised earlier, right? About the growing public consciousness and mm. the growing awareness among other types of workers, um, of like what's really going on here and, and how pe- more people are calling bullshit on the corporate media spin. Um, just, just like, uh, you know, like you were saying, Aaron, like, you know, whether that's like Jake Tapper holding up a baby and saying like, why are you guys trying to take (laughs) Christmas away from this baby? (laughs) Right. Um, he did not, it was was basically like that. Like the citations needed clip that we played. Uh, I mean, he might, he might as well have done that. Yeah. He might as well. It was all like, Oh, Christmas is coming. This could, this could shut down like the economy. It would cost, uh, there was an industry generated, uh, figure that kept getting getting cited in every media outlet that I saw, which was a rail strike could cause the U S economy $2 billion a day. Right. But like what I want to say to that. And and again, Mm. like I know I get, you know, I'm human just like all of us here, you know, I'll be honest with you guys. There've been plenty of times throughout this past year where I've gotten like incredibly depressed because I'm like, I feel like we've been trying our hardest to cover this and it's not making a dent. We're not doing enough. No one's listening. And when the mainstream media finally pays attention, when we're like days away from a rail shutdown, everyone's like picking apart our reporting and not citing us. <laughs> and like, so it gets, yeah, it gets yeah. depressing, but then I, then I kind of bounce back. You know, I, I have these periods and I'm, I remember that I'm like, if I'm feeling depressed, if I'm feeling overlooked, the whole point is that's how every working person around the, the, the world feels every single day. What we need to right. do is use that and harness it and point it all in the right and same direction. Right. And mm-hmm. it's been very uh, good to know that we're not alone in this struggle. We have comrades like you, all lifting this struggle up we have incredible folks like some that i mentioned before you know jonah Furman, um 
Lauren Gurley, uh, Jeff Shirky, um, like so many folks, uh, the, the Valley Labor Report, so many folks doing what they can mm-hmm. to, to contribute to raising public consciousness about that. And, and Railroad Workers United, you know, like doing uh, going on a full court press and like getting the workers out there like we're in the struggle together. And I think that when we are feeling, uh, you know, like 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 we need to take a step back, it's very good to know that we've got, you know, other folks pushing in that direction direction. And so I just wanted to kind of acknowledge that. But mm. um, the, the the point about like kind of subverting the corporate media narrative, there was actually, um, you know, I'm glad that people are saying like, fuck the $2 billion a day figure, right? A rail strike would cost the U.S. economy $2 billion a day. Well, how much are the, the, the rail carriers like destructive practices costing the U.S. economy every day? There was, yep. there was a really great line that, that stopped me in my tracks. I think this was David Dayen uh, in the American Prospect. They've also been doing uh, great coverage there, uh, as has Labor Notes and, and other great um, publications. Um, so, uh, so he wrote, this this is from one of the rail shippers uh, who who was like uh, earlier in the year begging Biden to to act. And um, what this rail shipper actually said was, quote, there are instances of origin grain elevators needing to turn away grain sales from farmers because they are full because the the freight is not being unloaded. Farmer um, said Mike Seifert of the National Grain and Feed Organization, who estimated $100 million in lost revenue and added freight expenses in the first quarter of 2022, right? So that's just like one tiny example, like because we're moving less freight, because we have fewer workers to move that freight, because uh, the rail carriers are trying to just like jack up the prices on the limited freight that they want to move instead of allowing us to move more freight. How much is that costing all of us? Like we already mentioned the ports being backed up. How much is that mm-hmm. causing the U.S. economy? Or remember two years ago when everyone was like pointing to that, uh, 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 I think it was a, a Union Pacific train in Los Angeles um, that got looted and de- that derailed and got looted. And it was a national story. It was like, oh, my God, crime, mm-hmm. crime is, is you know, through the roof. What what now more people are, are pointing out, because I think it was Jalopnik, a great little like online magazine that broke the story. They were like, hey, Union Pacific just did another round of layoffs two weeks before this happened. And also that train was longer than it should have been. So like that whole media generated, like, you know, narrative of like crime Mm -hmm. being uh, through the roof was actually just another example of corporate malfeasance run amok. And, and like now more and more people are seeing that, which I think is, is very hopeful. But um, to, Mm -hmm. to your point, Jamie, I just wanted to say, I think more people, and we're hearing this from other workers who are saying, Okay, if if in fact uh, rail workers are too vital to the supply chain to go on to be allowed to go on strike, if in fact the rail the freight rail industry is too essential to the supply chain to incur such disruptions, then frankly, the freight railroads are too important to be in private hands, let alone yes. in the hands of uh, corporate vampires who are destroying the whole system for the sake of profit. So like, I think more people are starting to make human that. lives, yeah. right? Right. Yeah. 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 Well, Railroad Workers United is actually pushing that uh, campaign forward. They started that campaign, what, two months ago? That was... Really sort of trying to raise the conversation around nationalizing the railroads. And these are rail workers who work on the railroads for these companies, right? Mm. So 
you know, it'll be interesting to see in the next couple of years how far that campaign goes because it would be nice. It would God. be nice. They did it during World War One. Just found that out today, doing a little bit of research. But then, guess what? They gave them back. The government unnationalized them because, again, this is America and we can't have nice things. Yeah. And actually, on that tip, Jamie, um, kind of talking about government intervention. And um, I'm sitting here in Georgia uh, and tonight the polls just closed at seven for uh, Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. And um, I I mean, I always go to the polls with a heavy heart. You know, how they talk about shaming, shaming people into voting for, you know, I think people should be ashamed of voting. I think when you leave the polls, <laughs> you should feel icky and kind of gross. But um, yeah. I did that today. And I'm, you know, thinking about this interview that we we're going to do and thinking about the um, response from elected officials. And I want to kind of split this up. Um, Jamie asked three great questions. I kind of want to split them up, um, I combine them, but kind of split them up. So. You have three kind of factions. You have Biden and the, um, you know, the um, establishment Democrats. You have progressives, right? You know, these DSA uh, backed electeds. And then you have like the right, right? So I guess to kind of ask these questions, one, um, what could Biden and the Democrats have done in this situation to create a good outcome for the workers? And what did they actually do? Uh, two, What's up with Republicans like Ted Cruz, who voted against stopping the strike? Right. Um, Obviously, I mean, I'll let you guys answer, but I mean, I just want to put this up for I mean, it's cynical, right? These guys don't give a shit about workers. I think, Mel, you said in the citations needed um, um, episode that you guys did that 364 days out of the year, they're going to be using all their political power and resources to crush workers. Right. And um, thirdly, uh, this is what I was kind of getting at with you in the DMs, Max. Um. What what the fuck is up with the progressives in Congress, man? Like what like what what's up with AOC? Um, uh, I think Ilhan Omar, maybe Jamal Bowman, Cory Bush voting to impose. And these are DSA endorsed members of Congress who no, only two. Only two of those are to be clear. Well, only AOC, two of those are okay, AOC but, and Cory Bush. Yeah. And Rashida Tlaib. Ostensibly been, progressive. Ostensibly progressive. And I just want to highlight the last thing I want to say is that. Rashida Tlaib, and we'll get into more into it, Rashida Tlaib voted this down, so I don't want to fucking hear any fucking 40 chess excuses about why these fucking people, who the only fucking reason why they're in office, right, is because they were pro-worker, they were pro-labor, along with these all these progressive bona fides that they have, right? So why the fuck is it that... Um, what, what's up with the progressives, man? What, why, why did they, why, what, what kind of 40 chess are people surmising and bringing up as to why they did what they did? I know those are three big questions, but basically what's up with the government response? Well, um, I think I can answer the first question and maybe a little bit of the second question. And then Max, if you want to tackle the progressive question, I think you would have a much more succinct analysis i think i'd probably just start yelling so Um, (laughs) succinct is not normally a word that is attributed to me but thank you (laughs) um no the federal response you know and this is this is something that you hear uh you know if you're tapped into the sort of like facebook groups or any of the sort of twitter threads particularly uh the the rail workers who do follow labor journalists or you know talk to each other on uh labor twitter air quotes, right? Mm. Um, the big thing that they were, the big thing that they were hoping going into um, this last, you know, 12 days or so, uh, this was, so the 
Biden administration signaled that the uh, the Congress should move on passing legislation on November 28th. Uh, the actual deadline for the cooling off period, the last day of the cooling off period after all of these tentative agreements had been rejected, was December 9th. So a full 12 days before the cooling off period was set to expire, and then the railroads could either lock out their workers or uh, the railroaders themselves could go on strike, the Biden administration moved to push this legislation forward. Now, the you know Congress was waiting for that signal, essentially. Mm-hmm. They passed that legislation within two days, right? Um, and there was this sort of showdown that happened with sick days and adding that in, which feels very symbolic. You know, I don't think very many people were particularly hopeful that it was going to go in any positive direction for the workers. Most of the workers felt this deep sense of betrayal mm-hmm. because what they were hoping for was that the Biden administration— would wait, essentially, right? Because they, just like the rail companies knew that this was going to be the eventual outcome, the unions also had that same sort of thought. And they, you know, they were hoping that it wouldn't get to that point. And the Biden administration was well within its rights to not do anything and let this play out. And if you think about it, right, If the leverage you have is withholding your labor, the threat of withholding your labor, the closer you get to a deadline, perhaps the more leverage you have at the bargaining table, Mm. right? So at some point over those 12 days, the unions could be sitting there across from the rail carriers going, tick-tock, man, five days, four days, three days. What are you going to do? Two days. Do you want to talk now? Do you want to figure this out? Or Mm. do you want to deal with the fallout of A, locking out your workers, which is kind of what they started doing back in September, right? Which is going to cause a lot of strife and consternation amongst the both Congress and the people who pay their paychecks, Mm. right? Because shareholders themselves would have started getting a little antsy about that, right? You know, um, or B, are you going to, uh, you know, try and call the bluff of the railroads and think they aren't going to walk out, right? That right there is bargaining power. And all the Biden administration had to do was let that process play out. Just hands off, yo. Just leave it the fuck alone. The, 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 like the best pro-labor, I mean, pro-labor president sounds like oxymoron, but the best ones are people that just say, hey, actually, I'm just going to let you guys just do this shit, right? And I'm not well, going to fucking you know, do anything, you know? Right. And it's like he could have at any point said, you know, we really want to make sure that the economy doesn't shut down. You know, hopefully they come to some sort of agreement. You know, maybe they get like in 1992, they got, what, two days into a shutdown before they imposed legislation. So that, you know, it played out all the way through. And, you know, am I right, Max? I think that's right. Right. They got a couple of days into an actual I don't know if it was a lockout or a strike, but they shut down the rail systems, I think, in 1992. Right. If I'm yeah, I think it was correctly. like uh, a little over a day. Yeah. So, you know, but like a lot of workers were like, okay, well, you could have given that to us. You really didn't say much in September beyond at the 11th hour starting to direct, you know, Labor Secretary Marty Walsh to walk into those boardrooms and start brokering a deal because they didn't want that shut down. Right. Mm -hmm. They let it play out to the the last minute, the last possible minute. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And uh you know, uh, they, the Biden administration, in many ways, I think for a lot of workers, they felt that he deliberately jumped the gun because he didn't want to piss off these rail bosses. And he sided with capital over labor. And right. that is what they see. They saw that 
as a true betrayal. And you saw, you know, take it with a grain of salt because Facebook is full of reactionaries, right? But mm. there were a lot of Democratic voters who said, I voted for Biden, never again, never going to vote Dem again. Mm. I have been screwed over. Fuck this party, right? Mm. Which is a, you know, reasonable reaction. No, that's that's the same. That's the same reaction to have. Right. be like, fuck you these know? people. Right. And so that sort of answers your question about conservatives like Cruz, like Rubio, you know, um, like individuals who never over the course of, and Max, you talked about this on, um, I think bad faith pod, right. Where it's like, you don't have a voting record that is pro worker. You've never had a voting record. That's pro worker. This is a cynical attempt to court this betrayed electorate. Right. And, you know, we're going to, we're going to see them in 2024, probably, you know, saying, well, if you remember two years ago, I voted against this. I sided with the worker. You know what I mean? And then we won't hear fuck all about it. They aren't oh, going to do fuck all about just, it. They're just going to use think, it for political capital. That's you don't it. think you don't think uh, Donald Trump would just uh, let him strike <laughs> if he was president? Because that's a take I've seen. Oh, hell, hell, uh, no, 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 <laughs> hell no, hell no. But but the thing is, is that it don't. But the thing is, is that he's not president. Right. So it's like what Biden just did is he just handed the layup to the fucking Republicans. I mean, look, bro, it's like, look, dog. All right. Of course, you're going to side with capital. Right. But at least to have the political calculus to stay in power. Right. So that you can continue fucking workers over, right? When you're in power. But you've just passed the fucking ball and handed it to the Republicans. And of course, we all here know that they're full of fucking shit. But I mean, like, like the way that people conceive politics is they look at it in individuals and personalities, right? right. And whoever is in office, they're going to blame that person, right? They're going to blame them. So, I mean, once again, like you were saying, Mel, of course, Fucking Ted Cruz is a cynical bastard who doesn't give a fuck about workers. But you've made it seem like Republicans, by not being in power, by the ones that are not imposing this contract that were, the railroad workers rejected, you're making it look like the Republicans are better than the Dems in this issue, right? So it's just, I mean, the political calculus no, is not even side, fucking there. You know, you know? It, again, it's, you know, neither side is is, is on the side of the worker, right? Mm-hmm. When, when you have to circle the wagons, the ruling class looks out for its own. They have class solidarity, mm-hmm. right? right? Which is exactly what we saw. With Congress, they all sided with the, you know, the rail bosses with capital because they can't afford either politically or otherwise to have the workers take their power and shut down, effectively shut down the economy for however long. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's that is the position that they are, you know, sitting in and, and talking about. And I think sort of twisting the knife a little bit is this additional sort of provision that the House tacked on for the seven-day sick leave, they punted to the Senate knowing that the Senate wasn't going to... So we got to talk about that a little bit because that shit... Okay, this is the 4D chest that I was bringing up earlier, right? This idea that that if you had split up the bill and added the sick days, I guess it's like an addendum or some shit like that, right? You had split them up, that at least that would have had a chance to pass, right? But it wasn't going to fucking pass anyway, right? And the fact that... And, you know, some of us may feel differently here, but I mean, the fact that like Rashida Tlaib voted against it, you didn't if it was going to pass, you didn't have to fucking vote for it. So I don't want to hear about any like, oh, well, we were trying to do this, that, and the other. Like, what are you talking about, dog? Your role as a well, they're not even progressive caucus, but I mean, you should be antagonistic, right, to the center, right? You should be antagonistic to the right for you to go along and I mean, and use it as like, I mean, the excuse, well, we thought that it was going to, it would be easier to pass it this way. I mean, and you know, I've seen 
like workers say that they agree with this tactic, right? I'm just like fucking armchair quarterbacking here, but it just doesn't make any sense to me. So I want to talk about that a little bit. Like what, what was the, what was the utility? What did they think they were going to, what did they think they were going to do with that? I guess the question is like, what did they actually knew it was going to happen? But what did they think they were going to do by splitting that up? Well, I think um, Jonah Furman put it best um, when he went on Chapo earlier this week um, that as far as Biden and Pelosi were concerned at the beginning of last week, the sick days were not on the table anymore because mm-hmm. Biden, yeah. I, I I saw the news when Biden made this announcement and I thought it was like, I thought it was him trying to kind of, it felt like a very Trumpian move. Like he was saying like, oh, we're not going to basically change the, the TA that I helped broker in September mm-hmm. uh, just just because right and, and i was like yeah i want to take I, credit for the shitty deal i want to take credit for the shitty deal yeah, yeah that's basically i was over here like does why it, why, why does not it count, <laughs> does it count as brokering if the majority of workers didn't want it like brokering implies that the deal was accepted by all yeah i mean like you know it's it's a great point because like the broker deal was brokered behind closed doors with Secretary of Labor Marty Walsh, Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg, I think the the, the you know the Ooh. some of the rail carrier um, you know leaders and leaders from the the rail unions, you know, and they were celebrating this as like a historic uh, tentative agreement. Um, and the media was buying it hook, line, and sinker. All the while, over a hundred thousand railroad workers never even saw the text of the goddamn thing until like weeks after that, or you know, if that, mm-hmm. right? And so then, yeah, like that triggered the whole process of this. The language of this tentative agreement now has to go to the membership of the twelve different craft unions for ratification. Uh, and some of them were voting it down. Some of them were voting to approve it. Ultimately, four of the 12 unions voted the tentative agreement that was reached, which is essentially a sweetened version of the presidential emergency board recommendations that were released in August. Um, so a num- four of the 12 unions uh, voted that tentative agreement down. But those, uh, you know, there were some of the biggest unions in those four. So, in fact, the membership of those four unions comprised 55 percent of the workforce on the, the freight railroads. So, yeah. And, and, and even the workers, uh, in the unions that voted for the tentative agreement, like those, those TA, those votes passed. It wasn't a landslide. They passed by like razor thin margins. And a lot of the folks that I spoke to said, yeah, you know what? I would probably vote this thing down and I would vote to strike if I thought they would actually let us. I'm just voting because mm-hmm. I want this fucking three year long process to be over with. Um, so, right. so already like the numbers of like who was in favor of the tentative agreement, who wasn't, there's right. a lot of like nuance that needs to be read into that as well. But mm-hmm. yeah, let me, let me, let me try to kind of, there's a lot of like great stuff here on the table and I'll try to address some of it. So the, the, the question of, like what Biden could have done, what anyone could have done in this situation. I think the thing to remember is that the biggest problem as I see it is that no one cared about this problem until we were literally at the precipice of disaster. Right. Like if they wanted to do something about this process, the first thing they could have done is give a shit about it. Like before uh, two days before a strike, Right. Because when you're in that situation, there's only so much that you can do. And in fact, I would argue and and who the fuck am I? Right. I'm in, I'm in the media. I try to be very careful about like staying in my lane, I, like what mm. workers want to do, the tactics they want to develop, what they think is uh, the best way forward. 
that's their call. That's not mine. Right. And, um, you know, I will say, as Mel pointed out, there are a lot of rank and filers who are very pissed off with their mm-hmm. union leadership because of the strategy um, that we did see play out over the course of these negotiations. There there was a concerted like um, strategy that was developed on the assumption that when Democrats control the White House and uh, Congress, we will have the favorable position to get more of what we want. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the, the strategy was to wait until Trump's out, press when Biden's in, um, you know, like have a favorable, a pro labor kind of administration. The guy um, with Cesar Chavez, the bust of Cesar Chavez in his office, right? Yeah. The, the, the most pro labor, pro, yeah, like, you know what I mean? Which I mean is, is, is pretty ironic considering remembering that now, right? Given yeah. What's happening. Yeah, a lot of a lot of folks are calling him Scab Joe, um, uh, <laughs> and um, so like so so that was a big part of the strategy that played out here. That is why, as I think Jonah or others, maybe Ross Gruder's like mentioned, that's why you know a lot of the unions weren't preparing their their membership to strike. That's why they weren't investing in rank and file organizing, agitating. That's why they weren't getting more of their people out there. Uh, it took Railroad Workers United to get a lot of rank and file workers' voices in the media. It wasn't the unions really doing that, right? Mm. So, you know, a lot of the union official strategy was to sort of, like, take Biden at his word, assume that, like, if we got de- this far down the the process of the Railway Labor Act – that Biden would appoint a labor-friendly presidential emergency board in July, and their mm-hmm. recommendations that they released a month later would be more favorable to labor. What we saw is that, you know, it's it's this old world style of thinking about unions in the labor movement. They're like, let's throw more money at it. Because that's mm. all ultimately they want, right? We're gonna we're gonna have this historic wage increase. We won't have to go into the nuances of, of that. I mean, but like going into this contract negotiation, the rail carriers, they were offering like 3% raise, right? Um, And now like they're going to get like 22% over five years with like certain bonuses, but that's retroactively going back to 2020. There's inflation. There are other uh, parts of that that are going to be gobbled up by increased uh, health insurance costs, yada, yada, yada. We don't have to go into that. But um, the point being is there was hope that actually – um, we don't want to broker an agreement at this point with the carriers. We want federal mediation to declare an impasse so that we can get to a PEB, which we think will be more in our favor. And that mm. turned out not to be the case. And then, you know, like with the brokered agreement in September, um, the hope was that, you know, Biden would kind of put his thumb on the scale and and help out a bit more. And the kind of what he offered to sweeten that deal was really like, you know, Bullshit. There were no extra sick days. There was nothing that addressed the quality of life issues that we've been talking about for the past hour. There's nothing that addressed like the destructive business practices that the rail carriers uh, have been, um, you know, like uh, running rampant on the rail system over the past two decades. None of that. Right. There was, oh, we're not going to give you paid sick days. We're going to give you like three personal days, but you have to schedule them 30 days in advance between Tuesday and Thursday. Okay. Thanks, I guess. Right. <laughs> Like that's, that's why does that feel like a why does that I mean I don't know if this is a good analogy, but it just popped in my head. Why does that feel like like almost like a capture or something like that, right? Like it's almost like this really weird, like a Rune Goldberg type of like, okay, like we'll give you this, 
but you have to do this, right? And it's like, right. dude, that's incoherent. That mm. doesn't make any fucking sense. How, do, how the fuck do I know what's going to happen in 30 fucking days, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Where I'm going to plan for that shit, dog. Like, I mean, come on, man. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's incredibly fucked up. Uh, you're putting people in impossible situations. And I think more and more people could see that, how fucking absurd that is. But, like, I really... Can we talk about these uh, these socialist electeds? A little bit. Oh, because it really. Uh, well, well, real like, quick before it, we we unleash on the socialists. <laughs> just uh, yes, <laughs> unleash. That's a good yes. Yes. So, so I just wanted to quickly parentheses before I forget. Um, like so, so the the Biden uh, administration and everyone in Congress, like this problem is not new, right? Like the, the right. poor uh, uh, chairman of the surface transportation board, Martin Oberman is out here screaming. He's like, they're fucking everything up. Is anyone going to do anything about this? And everyone's just like, Nope, we've got other stuff to deal with. Right. And so then we end up in a situation where suddenly everyone is taking an interest and their hearts bleed for the railroad workers. Again, when we're at the very precipice of a potential rail shutdown. So I would also, the, the thing I was going to say is what I would argue from the labor side, is that we shouldn't want to be in this position either. Like we shouldn't be mm-hmm. banking on a deus ex machina sort of assist from the federal government when we make it all the way down the Railway Labor Act. Like there is a role that the government can play. They can use the bully pulpit. They can be taking like more time during this long drawn out process to point out the corporate malfeasance that uh, has been running rampant on the freight railroads. Make the these carriers way less sympathetic because they fucking are right. Like point Ugh, out how what much would Bernie do? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Just rail, <laughs> like rail on these fuckers, like, like air their dirty laundry out in front of everyone. Talk about all the kind of tax breaks that they've been given. Talk about all the times that the government has looked the other way so that they could make more money because then you like, then you can actually like build some pressure on the carriers as we acknowledge. And what I want to say before we get to the, the rest of the politicians is that as much vitriol as I have for these fuckers, I do not want to let the carriers off scot-free because Warren Buffett mm. loves it when we are going 100%. after AOC or Marco Rubio because mm-hmm. no one's 100%. talking about Warren Buffett, right? And exactly. I, and so we got to like the, the quote-unquote good billionaire. Yeah. The, yeah, the quote-unquote good who feels bad that his secretary pays more in taxes than he does. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, man. get the fuck out of here. So like, so, so like. You should see his house here in Omaha. It's very <laughs> modest. Um, so, so. Tying those things together is 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 very very essential in in my view, and I do think that um, the government and Congress can make it more of an issue to expose what they've been doing and not wait until the last fucking minute to do so, right? Because then workers have a bit more leverage. But also, as we've already mentioned, this whole time the carriers have not had any incentive to change their ways because they know the government is on their side because the government is not doing what I just suggested that they mm-hmm. do, right? So that plays into the labor negotiations that the government isn't feeling or the carriers aren't feeling any pressure from the government from the public if they're just hearing pissed off workers and shippers but they don't really have to do anything to to appease them then they're just going to keep going on the way that they are so i would say that that there are more things that the government can do on that side and the last thing i'll just say about the fucking republicans is yeah like i don't buy 
any of their bullshit and nor should you right like mm-hmm. steve like i mean like steve fucking bannon having like the bmwed president like on his show like it's just what oh mel said it is such a cynical ploy to just appeal to a a, a, a betrayed workforce and like when you're in that state mm-hmm. of betrayal maybe you don't make the best decisions but again like how can you blame anyone for feeling betrayed by the democrats right now especially mm-hmm. if they work on the freight railroads but you know, like what I would say is that like, yeah, like um, Republicans are showing their true colors everywhere else. All you have to do is look the some of them like I think the most complaints that have come from congressional Republicans towards any agency is the NLRB. They want to mm. kill it. It is Republicans mm. who are responsible for the fact that the NLRB's budget hasn't been raised in like a decade. They want to throttle that goddamn agency because they hate unions. They hate workers banding together. They've been very open about that. But when they're in situations like these, the stakes are incredibly low for them to make symbolic gestures like they actually do stand with the working man when they really don't. And their voting record shows that they don't. And and mm-hmm. and like we we have to like call it out when we see it because it was Republican senators who were trying to, uh, quote unquote, avert a national rail shutdown in September by forcing the terms of the P.E.B. down workers throats the way that Biden just forced the mm. T.A. from September down their throats. So like the 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 the, the cook the the crumb trail is all there but it's, it's just so <laughs> it's, it's just so it's just so amazing that like you know like in the one hand they can speak out one side of their mouths while actually engaging in anti-labor practices or pushing this shit right i mean and like also just kind of making a complete reversal and again like it's just like it's a cynicism right but um, yeah. i think yeah, jamie they're, they're I, fucking mm. they're full of shit yeah, they're full of but shit. Like, yeah, their whole, okay. their whole, the the Republicans' whole motivation throughout all of this is how can we make this the Democrats' problem, not yes. right. how do we help workers? Like, if we understand that that it was never about workers, it was about political point scoring, then we can like better assess the situation. One hundred percent. And the Democrats are trying, meanwhile, to blame it on the Republicans instead of the greedy railroad barons, despite being like you know a cartoonishly evil villain that you could easily put on tv they're basically like the monopoly guy you know they're like no let's uh let's try to blame it on the republicans and you know maybe for once uh that's actually gonna work like usually the democrats are terrible at putting the blame on the republicans for shit that's actually their fault but in this case like yeah they're gonna they're gonna let that one ride they're gonna push that on msnbc but uh, yeah like i wanted to ask about the you know the progressives in Congress, because uh, if they're not going to vote on the side of the workers in something like this, what the like, fuck are you? Why good for? do why do we even have them? And I kind of wanted to throw this to Jorge because he's the most, uh, I guess, heavily involved with DSA here, and also the most heavily, um, I don't know, I I'll say like the least skeptical of electoral politics as a socialist tactic in our toolbox. Mm. So uh, I think I think he's got some thoughts. Don't on disrespect this. my man by calling him moderate, Jamie. Don't disrespect him. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> go go ahead, Hori. Hori wants to read a statement though from DSA. Well, well, I mean, so there's two things. One is mm. like. Uh, I can think that's right. I'm definitely the least skeptical, but I'm skeptical nonetheless. Let's be clear about that. Um, mm-hmm. I, <laughs> but I, but I think um, he said, "Don't call me a liberal." I want to read from DSA came out with an official statement, um, and, and I do I do want to make clear that just because elected act in a certain way does not necessarily reflect the organization. 
ultimately, yes. I am a, I am a DSA partisan through and through, um, mm-hmm. in the sense that I think that it's not necessarily only about elected uh, politics, and also I think it's also about everything else that goes onto it. And the statement goes into it. So I'm just going to read a portion of it, which is. When every major power in the country, the center, the right, and our laws aligned against workers, DSA members in Congress introduced a legislative push for sick days and forced them vote on the measure, which did not succeed. Which, to be to be clear, it's like this is kind of what, what Max was talking about earlier, that there, there wasn't going to be any discussion about this. And mm. there was a, a very, if, if the vote failed, it has more to do with the fact, with the point that Mel was bringing up earlier, that, oh, Dems were, the Dems were going to push it through and Republicans were just going to symbolically vote against it in the House, but then in the Senate, we're going to just ram it through anyway. Uh, but the fact that they weren't able to have any more leverage than they did has a sign to do with like just how weak the left really is in terms of elected power, uh, federally at least. We are, so back to the statement. We are proud of DSA member Representative Rashida Tlaib vote against the TA and for six days. Any vote by Congress to impose a bad contract on workers' sides with the boss and contradicts democratic socialist values. We disagree and are disappointed with the decision of DSA members Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Representative Cory Bush to needlessly vote to ensure the T- enforce the TA. The members are the union and a majority of members voted to reject the TA. Socialist elected must stand with unions when they reject a TA. The vote to defend workers' rights to strike was an opportunity to further organize the public in solidarity with the rail workers. The left cannot afford to miss these moments. Both rail unions and their class enemies understand a rail strike would not only cost an estimated $2 billion per day, it would also awaken workers around the world to the power of withholding their labor. This week's action on uh, this week's attack on working class self-determination should serve to remind us that our power comes from organization and our agency in our workplaces and communities. Only workers can build militant, rank-and-file reform movements strong enough to win strong contracts. You know, that's, that's the end of what the selection of government statement, but it really must be emphasized, and, uh, you know, and Max and Mel have been really good about naming it, is like only through a militant rank-and-file strategy. I mean, and I'm talking about everyone that's listening. Tell people you know that if you're not in a union, Try to be, join a union or try to form a union. And if you are in a union, especially one of these bigger unions, try to help and radicalize and, and politicize these unions. For decades, the unions in these countries and in this country have been depoliticized and have become non-radical. And the leadership in these unions are not interested. And I've kind of, and you know, Jonah Furman and, you know, y'all have also been really good about talking about how... Really, these unions just kind of like been relying on this strategy for decades of just of just depending on the Democrats to just kind of like, oh, well, we'll see, to try to get good deals. And this is kind of like the culmination of all of this. Mm-hmm. And we, it, it is a disappointment for someone like AOC and Cori Bush to vote the way that it did. Let's be clear about that. But it is also important to remember that if you think that Something we've always talked about in this show. You know, we did a whole reading series on Stain Revolution by Lenin. We on this show do not believe that socialism will happen through just merely by electoral reforms. Even if, like, my, say, for example, myself, I believe that absolutely elected elections would play a role in it, or ideally should play a role in it. But the fact of the matter is, if you think that's going to, oh, you just elect someone to office and that's it, 
No, workers must organize and must force change. That's the yeah. only way. I, I will say one thing. I want to. Um, I want to add to that too. Um, particularly with DSA is that, and this is a larger conversation. We don't have to get into it, but it's just something that I kept thinking about. Is that. Yo, DSA, as you said, Jorge, you have to separate the organization from the backed elected officials. I completely agree with that, right? Um, but it is interesting that DSA has no means of reprimanding elected officials, right? So it's just like, you know, I mean, of course, release a statement, but effectively, like, it seems like that's all they can really do, right? And that's not really a slight on DSA. I mean, there's organizational issues, and this is, like, not something that can happen overnight. But, like, I mean... Like these people are not like reprimanded from the left by this. And I don't know if they can or be held accountable is what I should say. I don't know if they can be held accountable. You know, I mean, I guess the one thing you can do is just not vote for them or we can expel them from DSA, yeah. which I mean, what would that even do? But, you know, I think this goes back to like accountability, whether it's with elected officials or with union leadership, as you were saying, Jorge, because at the end of the day, you're absolutely right. Um, union leadership has been de-radicalized and depoliticized, right? DSA as an organization as it exists now, has basically existed since 2016 for six years, 2016 or 2015, seven years. Don't pay attention to the date it was formed. It's a new organization since the Bernie, Bernie, the first Bernie Sanders campaign. So since that time, six, seven years of it being around as an organization, there are still a lot of uh, learning that needs to happen, a lot of growth that needs to happen, but most importantly, a lot of uh, organizing things to happen internally and things that you bring up aaron i think yeah absolutely these are these are active questions no one has a real answer to this if there was if someone had an answer then this would have already happened. Oh, i got an answer all right but i'm not gonna say it but, on the mic though. but but <laughs> it's like um <laughs> yeah my my boy john tormey a, a track worker in boston we we recorded a an all railroader panel on my show working people and he was very careful in his like thick Boston <laughs> accent. He was like, "I don't want the feds coming up to my door." <laughs> Listen, like, if, we, if, if we were behind the if we were behind the paywall, you'd have to pay. The feds would have to pay five dollars to hear me say what I want to say. But you know, um, well, uh, are we talking about a wildcat strike? Because I just fucking yeah. said it. And I think uh, Mel, wait, I think we should Mel. You have to, you have to dip out. Yeah, someone very close to me is celebrating 35 years okay. of sobriety today, so I got to Oh, shit. Going. Okay, cool, cool. All right, well, congrats well, to them, and thanks for, thanks for joining us, Mel. Yeah, yeah thank thanks you. for having me. Enjoy the rest of your conversation. Yeah. Shout, out, shout out to Mel for being an incredible reporter. Um, you know, I, would say, I just want to say while we're on the recording, you know, there were times when Mel and I were talking about this, and she was like, God, this is such a big topic to wrap your head around. Like, am I, am I getting this right? And, and like what I would just say to her is I was like, look, you care about these people. That's all I care about. Everything else, we can work on it. We can figure it out together. We can get the context there. I can't teach that. If, 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 if you have that as a reporter, that is all I need. And I think that that shows in the incredible reporting that Mel does, not just on the railroads, but she has been covering the CNH industrial strike in Iowa. She's covered, uh, she covered last year, um, you know, uh, graduate students. Uh, as well i mean like so so please um follow mel uh support the work that that she does and uh check out her book when it's done oh yeah, oh, yeah. Hell, very yeah. excited for that book mel very excited for that book yeah all right yeah fun. me too as long right. as i get, get a chance to write it okay i will talk <laughs> have, to you guys later thank yeah, you so have much fun bye thanks bye. for coming come on boys let's sing that old levy song i've been working on the railroad 
Give us the pitch, Russ. I've been working on the railroad all the live long day. I've been working on the railroad to pass the time away. Don't you hear the whistle blowing? Rise up so early in the morning. Don't you hear the captain shouting? Oh, 